Okay, so today we're picking up in Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to be beginning session 5 today. I guess we should begin with the hymn. Do we all know the tune for it? Yeah, okay. Karen's got it. All right, so let's go ahead and sing it. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ the heavenly up at day one, Hebrews chapter 8, and let's go ahead and read the first two verses there, Hebrews 8, 1, and, one through 2. Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who sits at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy place, in the true tent that the Lord said, not man. Thank you. All right, question number one. The writer begins chapter eight with this summary. The point of which, the point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest. Look back over the previous chapter, particularly verses 24 through 27. What makes Jesus the high priest that you need? There's no end. There's no end? 
So it's eternal. Uh-huh. It's permanent. He gave his life. He gave his life, and what did that do? How was that better than um, an animal sacrifice? Once for all, he rose again. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. What is the difference between... hmm, Did Jesus have to make a sacrifice for himself, like the other Levitical priests? No, that's... That's another difference there as well. So Jesus is the superior high priest, the eternal high priest, the perfect high priest, who himself is the sacrifice and washes away all sins. And so that's why he's the high priest that we need, because we don't have the Levitical high priests anymore. As if those high priests had any power to save anyway, which they don't. So Jesus is the high priest that we need. He lives eternally in heaven. He speaks on our behalf. He is our advocate with the Father and our intercessor. His death has atoned for the sins of the whole world. And we need the forgiveness and grace that he offers to us. That we wouldn't get through the sacrifice of bulls and goats and other animals. Question number two. What is the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, in verse two? You say it's heaven, okay. Any other thoughts? Sure, from Ezekiel. Wherever God dwells, that's a pretty good definition of heaven. Right, so Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father. The true tent, this is, this is heaven. This is God's heavenly throne room where Jesus is. What does it say in verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 8? Would someone like to read verse 5 then? They serve as a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So there is, it, it is heaven. And then we should also look at Hebrews 9. Verses 11 and then 24 in addition. Would someone like to read those for us? So when Christ appeared as a high priest for the good things that have come, then to the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. And then verse 24. Correct. Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but is the heaven itself. So the true tabernacle is 
heaven, the, the presence of God, where God is. Question number three for personal reflection. John 17 gives us a moving portrait of Jesus praying for his disciples, praying for you and me. You may want to read especially John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. Think about what your high priest and heavenly intercessor, Jesus, might be saying to the Father on your behalf at this time. So let's just go ahead and read John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that you also, whom you have given me, that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. That the love with them you have loved me, the love with which you have loved me, may be in them, I in them. So here Jesus is praying for his disciples, but I think it's fair to say that this is his prayer for all of us as well. That Jesus desires that we who have been given to Jesus may be with him and see his glory. All right, any questions on verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews chapter 8? We have this sanctuary, this true tabernacle, which is heaven or the presence of God. We have Jesus being the better, still being the better high priest. Okay, moving on then. Now in my book, it seems to be a typo. It says we're supposed to read Hebrews 3, 3 through 5, but I think that first 3 is supposed to be an 8. Under day 2, does everybody has that typo? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So we're going to stay in Hebrews chapter 8. We're not going to go five chapters back. So wherever we left off with the reading, let's read verses 3 through 5. Okay. Question number four. 
to what essential function of high priests does the writer refer? What are the high priests doing in these verses? Sacrificing. Sacrificing, yeah. Right, they're also in charge of erecting the tent, the tabernacle. Now, as the priests see the priests, they have to sacrifice not only for themselves, but then also for the people. And what do these sacrifices do? They atone for sin, right? That's, that's exactly how we want to say that is the blood of the sacrifice covers that sin. So then it's a various, it's an essential job then for the priest. They need the priests, they need these sacrifices, or else they are not following the law of God and sin is not being atoned for. If there was not this atonement, then the Israelites would not be cleansed and their sins would not be covered. And then they would fall out of the covenant with God and then they would be faithless. All right, we need to take a look at verse 3 in order to answer this question. What does that say? For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. And would someone read Hebrews 9, verse 13? For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, Okay, again, making atonement, making atonement for sin, sins being covered with the blood of these sacrifices. So what does Jesus offer as our high priest? Himself. Let's go ahead and turn to 1 Peter 1, 18-19. And would someone like to read that little chunk? Knowing that you were ransomed from the human ways and heritage of your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So what then makes Jesus' blood different than the blood of any other animal, any goat, any sheep, any ox? Sorry? It's pure, right? He's God. He's God. That's a big one, too. What else is he? Is Jesus just God? 
He's both God and man, which is important for us. And he is sinless. And he is sinless. Right. Jesus' blood has his life in it. Right. And his life is the life of the world. Right, and so if Jesus were just a man, his blood being spilled really wouldn't do anything for us, right? Men aren't able to save men eternally just by dying. He has to be both God and man and sinless and perfect and have fulfilled the law for us, which he has done. So his blood is better than any other human's blood, as well as it's way better than the blood of bulls and goats. Right? We eat his body and drink his blood, and we do this all together. One body of Christ, right? One cup of the Lord's blood. I have a question. Yes. So the high priests, when they, the atonement, the blood of the bulls and goats and all the sacrifices, was it? Did that, that blood actually take the sin away of all the people? Or was it the fact that they did what the law said? That is a very good question. We have a once-for-all sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world, that being the death of Jesus and his blood being spilled. The blood of the bulls and the goats wasn't able to save people eternally, right? I mean, you could just kind of go through the motions and not believe. What the sacrificial system did was it covered, it covered the sins of the people and earned them what we would call a civil righteousness. So it means that they remained within the covenant, right? They were obeying the law of God. Um, Their sins were covered by the priest. They remained in good standing within the faith, and they were being faithful to God and his law. But that blood and those sacrifices did not actually save them from their sins in the same way that Jesus Christ, by his death, and resurrection saved them and save us from our sins as well. The righteousness that was accounted to them by faith was the belief in the Messiah who was to come, Jesus Christ, who would be the once for all sacrifice. Does that does that help? Yeah, but then when you say it was their faith in the belief of a Messiah to come, they were thinking of someone who would restore Israel, weren't they? Well, they still would have had the promise from Genesis, right? Okay. 
some of them might have been misled and they were believing in sort of an earthly messiah who would throw off whatever oppressive nation was conquering them and occupying them currently. But for the, for the faithful, for the remnant that God has always preserved, they always had their eyes set on the coming messiah who would deliver them from their sins, who would be the sacrifice, whose blood would remove and cleanse and purify, and then they would be clothed with perfect righteousness. Good question. Follow-up question? Um, Christ is, has three offices, prophet, priest, and king. And we and the Hebrews came to think of king as being the main one. I think that's fair to say, right? Yeah. And sort of an earthly perspective. Yeah. And this is showing how much more there is. Priest, mm-hmm. um, I mean, priest seems like to me, having grown up in the Protestant, uh, being something that's not very. We don't really need anymore. Right, we don't really think of it. No, no, we don't think about it. Yeah, yeah. And yet it's necessary, and Christ is our high priest. Did Luther drop that title of priest? Did Luther drop the title of priest? I know within Lutheranism we kind of stray away from that word. We wouldn't really call our pastors priests. With the same understanding that the Anglican Church or the Catholic Church would. Pastor, do you know when that priest word fell out of favor? Not off the top of my head. Okay. I have to do some more research. You're the one who had to do research for this week, too. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. I just, and just like last week, this came up in other. Now, the Lutherans wouldn't be opposed to using that word father, but we would be hesitant to use that word priest to describe our pastors because the Roman Catholics view the Lord's Supper, just to simplify, as like a re-sacrifice. And so in that way, they're acting as the Old Testament priests would have been, sacrificing. So we say, no, that's not right. So we would stray away from using that word priest to talk about specifically our our pastors. But then we have the priesthood of all believers, and that also factors into it. So, good question. 
All right, question number six. The writer refers to those who already offer gifts prescribed by the law. This statement tells us that the temple was still standing and sacrifices were still being offered in it when this epistle was written. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD during the Jewish war with Rome. The Levitical priests served in a temple that was a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. In fact, the Israelites constructed the tabernacle according to the pattern God showed Moses on Mount Sinai. What attitude was to be instilled in the Israelites as they remembered that the true tabernacle is in heaven? That is a long question, but we should look ahead to Hebrews 11, 10, and 16. Would someone like to read those verses for us? So with this in mind, what attitude was to be instilled in the Israelites as they remembered that the true tabernacle is in heaven? That could have been something that they were looking forward to, certainly. Right. In which verse? Sorry, which verse? Abraham? It's Abraham. Okay. So the fact that the tabernacle was a copy of the true tabernacle that is in heaven <coughs> means that the Israelites should be looking forward to the true tabernacle and not necessarily get hung up on the one that is sitting in one particular spot in Israel, in Jerusalem. They're always looking forward. In the same way that Abraham looks forward to the promised land, the Israelites, it should have been instilled in them to always be looking forward. That's true, yeah. <laughs> and for 
where you set it up, these stiffens and all that too. Preferably on a flat piece of land. Yes. <laughs> so we look forward to a tabernacle in heaven, not made by human hands, but the city that the Lord has prepared, the tent that he has prepared for us. Question number seven. In what way is the true tabernacle superior to its earthly copy? And we're supposed to look back to verse 2. So this true tabernacle of heaven, how is it better and superior to the one here on earth? God sets it up. God does it himself. Now, what is it about humans that kind of messes stuff up all the time? Sin, right. But will there be sin in the new tabernacle, in the heavenly tabernacle? No. And it is set up perfectly by God, without any sort of human involvement. Question number eight. What does Paul say in Colossians 2, verses 16 through 17, were also a shadow of a true reality? Looks like we have to flip on over to Colossians. So what things then were the shadow? What we're allowed to eat and drink. Mm -hmm. Right, so all of those regulations that the Lord put on the children of Israel, those were shadows in the same way that the tabernacle was a shadow of things to come. Now, what do all of these things point to? Throughout the Old Testament, all the rules and regulations, all the laws, everything needs to be set up perfectly. What do they all, or who? Jesus fulfills them. That's right. They, they all point forward to Christ who fulfills the law for us on our behalf and earns, then, a perfect righteousness under the law that he gives to you freely by faith.
verse, which verse, 16? And 17. body, isn't there it? Is, uh, soma, which means body. Yeah. And so uh, it's not quite substance there. What verse in Hebrew are you hearing? Uh, well, <coughs> Hebrews 11.1 1 says faith and substance of things so forth. I do believe it's a different word in Hebrews 11. Okay, question number nine. Read Revelation 5, 11 to 14, where we have part of a description of the worship that occurs in heaven. In what ways do you find the worship that occurs in your church similar to the worship that occurs in heaven? Revelation 5, 11 through 14. Would someone like to read that for us? Okay. And I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders of the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Thank you. So having read these verses from Revelation, what does that inform us about how worship will be in heaven? And then how do we, how do we have it here on earth, in our own church? Are they the same? Are they different? We'll, we'll be worshipping God in this person. In, in the very yes yeah we don't have to 
Well, he's here now, but we. But I mean, where would you bow down and worship? Right. In paradise with our Lord forever. Sometimes in the introit, when the uh, the choir sings up above, it's kind of like angels, you know. <laughs> to me, it just. <laughs> I'm sure that's a very high compliment to our, our choir. <laughs> In the liturgy, it's always there that uh, we worship with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. Mm-hmm. And then we sing holy. Yeah, one similarity, but we are part of that, and we're singing the same things. So here on earth and there in heaven, we have the same liturgy, we can say. We're singing the exact same words as those angels and archangels. I think that's a good similarity. All right, any questions or closing thoughts on verses 3 through 5 of Hebrews chapter 8? Seeing none, let's go ahead and read verses 6 through 9 of Hebrews 8. Where did we leave off? writer of Hebrews has demonstrated and then repeats in verse 6 that Jesus' priesthood is superior to that of the Levitical priests. Review this point by noting what he has said in these verses. We're going to have to flip back to chapter 7. 7 verse 19. Someone read that. For the law made nothing perfect. Okay, so let's ask the question, what is the difference then between the Jesus' own priesthood and the Levitical priesthood as it relates to verse 19? Christ, Christ is perfect and is able to make us perfect by his blood. 
the priests were under a legal requirement, but Jesus was not. Right. Jesus is a priest mm -hmm. of the gospel. The Levites were priests because it was the law. They had to. It was if they didn't, they would be transgressing. All right, seven twenty-one. Would someone read that? But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, "The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever." Okay, so the difference between the Levitical priesthood and then Jesus' own priesthood. Eternal. Jesus is forever and eternal. Those Levitical priests have all died and gone to heaven. Verse 24. But he who holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Again, Jesus' priesthood is forever. It's lasting and permanent. The Levitical priesthood has ended. And then 27. Who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. So what's the difference there? Once for all. Once for all. And Jesus didn't have to make a sacrifice for his own sin either. Okay, now we're going to talk about the covenant, specifically the old covenant. Question 11, now the writer also maintains that the covenant Jesus brought into being is superior to the old covenant. Why? That's a big difference, yeah. What was the first covenant? Sure, yeah. Yes. The covenant with Adam was And did they do that? And they didn't do that. So then, the Old Covenant is characterized by what? In order to remain God's people, what do God's people have to do under the Old Covenant? You have to obey the law. Perfectly. Can the law save you? No, why? Because you, you just can't keep it. The sin in your heart, your sinful flesh, you cannot keep God's law perfectly. And yet that's what God's people were called to do, which again is why they needed all of these sacrifices and the Levites, so that blood could be spilled and atone for sin. Unobtainable perfection, right? It, no matter how hard you tried, 
you could not keep God's law perfectly. So the old covenant, the old covenant couldn't save you. The, the law could not save you. I mean, it could if you obeyed it perfectly, but no one could except Christ. So the new covenant that Christ brings with him, how then is that superior to this old covenant? I see it as the old covenant would be ongoing. You'd have to constantly be sacrificing forever Mm -hmm. in order to keep what they call the covenant. And Jesus did it one time and it was done. Right. What is the what is the promise that Christ's covenant gives us? Eternal life. Eternal life. And what does the law promise? <laughs> right. Keep on trying. You're never you're never going to measure up to God's perfect law. You can keep on trying. But Christ is the one who has perfectly obeyed the law for you in your place. And now through Christ, we have a better covenant. Because we the, have forgiveness. We, ha we have forgiveness of sins. We have the promise of eternal life. We have salvation. We have a better promise. I have a note here that we should look at Hebrews 9, verse 15. Would someone like to read Hebrews 9, 15? Therefore he is the mediator of the new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems him from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So it's Christ and his sacrifice that redeems everyone, once and for all. Those under the old covenant are redeemed by the spilling of Jesus' blood. And with that covenant, we have the promised eternal inheritance, which is everything that Christ earns for us by his perfect death, was life, his death, and his resurrection, which is the forgiveness of sins, a clean conscience, salvation, eternal life, every good thing. We, we inherit it because God has made us his children in holy baptism. All right, any questions there on question 11? Question number 12. The author now quotes a passage from the prophet Jeremiah that contrasts the new covenant with the previous covenant. What was the essence of the first covenant? Jeremiah 
Could someone read Jeremiah 7.23? So what was the essence of the first covenant? Sorry? Obey. Obey who? Obey God. Obey me and I will be your God and you will be my people. Walk in the ways that I command you. Why? So that it will be well with you. So the essence of the first covenant was law. Perfectly obey God in all of his commandments, and then it will be well with you. Now, was it always well with the children of Israel? No. No. Why not? They did not obey. The Old Testament is just a one big cycle of faithlessness into... Somebody coming in and conquering them, hauling them away as slaves, and them realizing that they really messed up, calling out for deliverance, returning to faith in Christ and the Lord, and obeying his law once again, and then on loop, on repeat, over and over. I can remember in some other Bible study, I learned that that's like a two-way covenant. People had to do something. Right. With the new covenant, Christ has done it all. He's done it all for us. We don't really contribute to our own, we can't contribute to our own salvation. Christ does it all for us. Yes. Life is a lot different now than it was prior to that first covenant. Are there more ways to sin now than there were then? Are there more ways to sin now than there were back then? Hmm. I think with each passing day, we become more creative with our sin. And that's not really a good thing. But then again, nothing is new under the sun. So there's, re- there's really no limit to our own depravity. But at one point, the Lord just did wipe out all the earth because the heart of man was only doing sin all the time. So he hasn't done that twice yet. He's done it once with the flood. But that's a good question. There's nothing new under the sun, yet our sinful creativity knows no bounds. The basics of the Ten Commandments haven't changed. That's right. God's law is eternal that way. So the sins that we do now, I guess, could apply to one or another or another or another commandments, which really isn't a new way of sinning. Right. We're the Ten Commandments catch us in every sin, in every sin. We probably created new excuses. Oh, we're probably really good at that too. We're always justifying ourselves and passing the blame. 
looking at others and saying, well, he or she is worse than I am. I heard it put this way. Uh, civil authority has created so many laws because uh, we've forgotten the first ten. Hmm. There's probably a little bit of truth to that. All right, question 13a. Who was the active agent in the establishment of the first covenant? And we're still in Jeremiah 7, verses 21 and 23. Someone like to read those? Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Was, are we? No, I'm sorry. No, you had it. Is that, am I right? Yes. Okay, add your bur burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to, to your fathers or command them concerning burnt, burnt offerings and sacrifice. But this command I, get, I gave them. Obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people. And walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. So who initiates this first covenant? God. God himself. He himself initiates the covenant. He himself promises to bless those who live in it. And letter B, who was the active agent in the fulfillment of the first covenant. Jesus. Under this first covenant, the Israelites were the ones to fulfill the terms of the covenant by obeying God and following every command. Under the first covenant, now they very rarely were successful and frequently fell into sin and idolatry and then were not recipients of the Lord's blessing but instead they received some sort of punishment. Okay, I think we're at time so we're going to have to pick up here next week probably pick up here again at question 13, 13 and 14. Let's go ahead and close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name.